0: You turn tonight to the book of Job. Boy, I tell you, what, a, what an exciting, what a challenging, what a difficult book to be uh, even, you know, reading, let alone trying to study and preach it and experience it and live it and understand it, right? Right. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Philip Yancey's written a number of books. He's a well known Christian author. He wrote a book called Rumors of Another World. It's not quite as well known as some of his other works. And he writes in that book No one gets an exception from hardship on planet Earth. How many know that's probably true? You know, how many here would say, I, would, I wouldn't mind getting the exception card? Anybody here, you know, i will like to get that card. You know, I'd like to miss some of the hardships in life, but it doesn't usually work that way. How we receive hardship. Hinges on whether we believe in an alternative reality that transcends the one we know so well. So what is really he's saying is simply this. If you and I only believe that there's life on earth and we hit hardship, it can be very heartbreaking. But if we know as a child of God that this life is not all there is, if we know that this is only a small fragment of the life we're about to live forever, then we can handle the adversity and difficulty that comes our way as a believer. He goes on to say the Bible never minimizes hardships or fairness, uh, actually unfairness. Rather you, when you start reading books like Job or the Psalms or Lamentation, you begin to recognize that there is hardship. Isn't that true? How many go, yeah, that's right. I, I recognize that. And it simply asks us to hold final judgment until all the evidence is in. Because so often when things are happening in our life that are very painful, we, kinda, we can get upset with God. We can get upset with life. As a matter of fact, when we read the Scriptures, we recognize that. Job got a little upset with God. And God can handle our emotions. God can handle the fact that maybe we're you know, having a hard time with what's happening in our lives. But what he's suggesting is that you and I may not know the whole story. We may not know that actually the course that God is taking us over possibly could be the best course. You know, I could just go on and on, talk about silver linings in the clouds. I could talk about, man, I would have never done it that way, but at the end of the day, this is even working out better than I thought. You know, and it's coming through this realm called hardship. In the face of everyday fear, what does Jesus do? He points to things like lilies or sparrows, and you know what he calmly says to us? Just trust me. Isn't that an amazing statement? And he goes on to say something like, why don't you put God's kingdom first? You know, it's not something that we want to do. It's not the orientation that our culture has, putting God ahead of everything else. We're afraid to do it, let's be honest, right? Because we're hanging on to what this world offers, because it's the world we know. And so often we say, well, you know, the things that are spiritual are a little bit harder to wrap our hearts and minds around. You know, trust does not eliminate the bad things that may happen whatever sparks our fear in the first place. You know, trust simply finds a new outlet for anxiety and a new ground for confidence, and that's in God himself. I, I really believe that, you know, when we come to the end of ourselves, that's when life really gets good, because now we have to learn to trust God in a way we have not before. Let God worry about the worrisome details of our lives. Most of which are out of our control anyway. Isn't that true? How many here could say, you know, Pastor, I hate to admit it, but I'm a worry wart. You know, I stress and fret and worry about all, all kinds of stuff. Is that you tonight? I just want to encourage you a little bit. You know, you don't have to live in a state of worry. You know, think about this. How many here, you're a parent tonight? You're a parent. Let me ask a question tonight. Don't you want the best for your child? How many could say, that's true? I really want the best for my kids. Isn't that true? Where do you think we get that from? I believe that that instinct, that desire is put in our hearts by God the Father. Now, if, if you and I want the best for our children, how much more does our Father in heaven want the best for you and me? So why are we sweating? You know, is He not our Father? Will He not care for us? The answer is, of course He will. But we have problems sometimes. Well, one of the most enigmatic or perplexing characters in the book of Job Is a man by the name of Elihu, and he doesn't even show up in the book until chapter. 32, which is a long ways from the beginning of the story. So, you know, just a quick review of the book of Job. First two chapters, you have a prologue. In the prologue, we have a setting of what's happening. Job is a man who is blameless. He's a man who fears God. He's doing what God's asking him to do. He's an awesome believer. But you know what? There's a little thing that's going on in the heavenly realms, totally unaware to Job. There's a conversation between Satan and God, and God points out to Satan that here's an amazing saint. He fears. God. He's avoiding what's evil. You know, pretty good guy, right? He's blameless. And Satan says, well, you know, God, the way you've been treating this guy with kid gloves, I mean, anybody can serve you. I mean, he's the richest guy in the world. He's one of the wisest people. Everybody's following him. You know, everybody respects him. I mean, you know, God just let a little adversity hit his life, and we'll see if he serves you for nothing. And so God says, hey, I know what this guy's like. I know he's not going to buckle under the adversity. And so all of a sudden, God allows Satan to attack him, and he takes away you know, his health, he loses all of his money, his children are lost to a crisis, and, uh, and then even the esteem that he once had in his community is totally dissipated, and he feels like he's worthless. I mean, his whole life comes crashing down. And so we pick up the story, you know, Job's trying to process all of the difficulty that's come into his life, and three of his friends show up, they're going to try to help him walk through and comfort him through the experience, and for seven days they sit there and say nothing. They're just kind of, you know, can't believe that Job is in this deep, dire, terrible situation in his life. And then they begin to talk to Job about what possibly God could be doing in his life. And the basic premise goes something like this. And you have to understand the Old Testament to really understand the story. It goes something like this. You know, in the book of Leviticus... If you obey God, God blesses you, and if you disobey God, God allows curses to come in your life. And so the three friends are looking at Job's life and saying, "Man, Job, you've had so many curses coming into your life. It just must mean that you've disobeyed God somewhere." So the whole they've kind of work it out in their mind, and they basically say, "Job, you've must have really sinned bad to be in this mess." But I'll tell you what: all you need to do is repent, and God will restore all of that prosperity and all the good things back in your life. And Job goes, "Wait a minute." I didn't do anything to deserve this. And now Job begins to say in his, in his speeches that God has treated them unfairly, that he doesn't deserve what he's experiencing. He says, yeah, I may have done something wrong, but nothing that deserves what I'm getting. And he says, I'm blameless. I didn't do anything. And you know, Job is right. He didn't do anything. And so what we're learning is a little bit of the theology of the day, and it's called retribution theology. And by the way, this theological idea is pervasive in our culture today. And many Christians, we kind of do this kind of thing. You know, we think, hey, if I'm doing the right thing, God will bless me. If I mess up, I can understand if I'm getting disciplined by God. But when I don't do anything wrong, why am I having this hardship in my life? And Elihu is going to bring out some other ideas of why that could possibly be. Now, it's interesting that some of the Bible scholars uh, really don't believe that Elihu adds anything to the discussion. And my thinking is, well, you know, One of my own teachers, Dr. Uh, Tremper Longman, says this. In a word, Elihu offers nothing new to the debate concerning Job's suffering in terms of substance. You know, I really appreciate Dr. Longman. I know him personally. I've had courses with him, but I don't agree with him. I don't agree with some of the other scholars that say, you know, he's not adding anything to the equation. I actually go along with Pastor Ray Stedman, who says this. Some regard him as a brash young man full of arrogance and youth. You know, he's kind of angry. We're gonna see that in a minute. Some think that Elihu adds nothing to the conversation but merely repeats the argument of Job's three comforters. Um, still others dismiss Elihu's words as meaning, a meaningless interruption, noting that God, when he enters into the discussion at the end of the book, Doesn't even mention the character. So Elihu kind of comes in, says his piece, and goes out. And you have all of these discussions of who is this guy, what is he saying, what's he really adding. And I'm saying to myself, look, anytime you have six chapters in a book called the Bible, there's got to be a reason for it. You know that's how my mind works. There's got to be a reason for it, so I just started looking. I'm like the little boy, you know, that uh, he was put in the room, you know, and all that was was manure in there, and he got all happy and whistling and started digging away. And somebody said, "How come you're so happy?" there has got to be a horse in here somewhere. You see, I believe there's got to be something in these t- six chapters worth looking at. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these at least three of these chapters tonight, and I want to show you some of the powerful things that we can learn from the story. Job chapter thirty-two. And um, verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he, Job, was righteous in his own eyes. In other words, Job said, I'm innocent. And so they just got tired of this. They just said, we cannot convince Job to straighten his life out. You know, he's a mess. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job and now we find out why he's upset with Job. It says, for he justifies himself rather than God. Wow. In other words, Job was basically saying, God, I'm innocent, therefore you're unfair. Therefore, you know, he was condemning God based on what was happening in his life. Now, here's a young man who's the Bible says was angry with Job. You know, I had a little thought about this. You know, the Bible does say this, that in our anger, We are not to sin. So anger is not necessarily sinful. I I think in our culture, we we kind of avoid anger. We think it as a negative emotion. How many kind of perceive anger as a negative emotion? I think we do as a culture, don't we? But I want to just say something. God gets angry. So obviously, it can't be a negative emotion. I think the problem in our culture is we have a wrong understanding of anger. Here's the deal. Usually when we're angry, it's because somebody's offended us. Usually when we're angry, it's because somebody's inconvenienced us. True. We don't usually get angry about the right things. That's the whole problem. And so often what happens is we just kind of fly off the handle. We, just, we, we don't control this emotion in our life. But I am now convinced there's a reason for anger. Take a look at this text. It says, do, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So often when we read that verse, we interpret it to mean simply this. Hey, when you're upset, usually you're upset with somebody in your life, right? And you're angry. You try to say, hey, we've got to make a short account of this and not carry over this anger into another day. Or we need to deal with this anger issue with this person as quickly as possible. We can't let this thing perpetuate itself. Now, I think that's a true understanding. But let me give you a different understanding and I think this is equally true and it's simply this that when you and I see injustice in our world that we get angry towards it when we see other people taken advantage of that something motivates us and the idea of not letting the you know, sun go down upon your anger is simply this that you and I do not become indifferent to the plight of that situation because you know so often we just kind of go oh well we just become apathetic and indifferent to the injustices in other people's situations. And many times, we have the power to do something about it. And I think when God's allowing us to be angry about it, and we have the power to do something about it, God is basically saying, get in there and do something about it. Not, don't just go off half-cocked. You've got to think about what you're going to do. But anger is a, an emotion that's designed to motivate us to action. Right. Okay, so it's not always a negative emotion. It's only negative when it's, I'm motivated to action because somebody's offended me. See, when it's, when it's our issue, but I'm talking about when we're angry because we see someone else being exploited and taken advantage of. Then I think it's a positive thing, all right? So I, you know what, what's fascinating is that Elihu is actually... His anger was somewhat justified because actually God was angry with Job. This is going to shock you. Let's take a look at what God says to Job in chapter 40. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He says to him, brace yourself like a man. I've got a few questions and you're going to answer me. And then he said, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Wasn't that what Job was doing? And the answer is, yes, he was. He was saying, God, I'm innocent, and what I'm experiencing is unjustified. Therefore, you're the one that's in control of this stuff. You're not treating me fairly. Therefore, God, I'm unhappy with you. And actually, it's interesting that he actually uh, brings, you know, Job in the last chapter, 31, brings this up. He kind of gives out, you know, a kind of a confrontation with God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Elihu is also angry at Job's friends. Look at verse 3 of chapter 32. He was angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job, and yet they had condemned Job. In other words, they were saying, Job, you've got a problem, but they never really got down to dealing with Job's issue. And so he was upset about that. Oh, by the way, God was angry with those three guys too. It says in Job chapter 42, verse 7, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So, why am I saying all of this? I'm saying Elihu was on the same page as God. He was angry at these people for the right reasons, except for one, and we'll talk about that in a little minute. Okay. I think one of the reasons why God never mentions Elihu is God wasn't really angry with Elihu, he wasn't upset with him, he was upset with Job because Job was condemning him. He was upset with the three friends because they were condemning Job. And they said a bunch of things about God that weren't true. Now, as we look at the story we find out why Elihu hasn't entered into the equation until this moment. And he explains it in chapter 32, verse 4. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than him. In other words, he had respect to people that were of age, that were older than him. He said, hey, I just expect these guys to know what to say. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. In other words, he just couldn't sit still anymore. He just goes, this is nuts. I mean, these guys are not dealing with the issue at hand. And so he enters into the conversation at this point. I think there are three main things that Elihu's presence and discussion here at this point in the story actually helps us advance a little bit of the discussion of why Job is suffering. And I want to look at the first thing that Elihu brings to this discussion. And it's simply the placement of his words. In other words, where he comes in into the discussion. I think it's very fascinating. I want to just remind us, if you look at chapter 31, the last statement in chapter 31, verse 40 says, and the words of Job are ended. In other words, Job lays down a gauntlet. He says, okay, God, if I'm guilty of this, you can do this to me. If I'm guilty of this, you can do this to me. And Job is really basically... uh, He's using hyperbole. As everybody know that's a figure of speech that means he's exaggerating? He's basically saying, hey, if I've done this, you can just wipe me out. I mean, he is just really, you know, uptight about what's happening, and he kind of goes down, and, you know, last week I brought it out, there was about five things he said, if I'm guilty of this, you can do this to me, God. You know, if I've been cheating on my wife, me and my wife be taken away from me, and maybe somebody else gets her. I mean, he was really basically saying, I'm innocent, God, And he's waiting for God to say something. As a matter of fact, I think the other three guys are standing there looking at Job and going, my goodness, he's just about to ask God to send lightning down from heaven and zap him, you know. And they're all waiting for something to happen. They're all waiting for God to speak. And you know what happens? God doesn't talk. And I I came to this deep realization, you know, Well, Job 27, he says, as surely as God lives who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter. He's blaming God for his life. He's blaming God for his pain. He's blaming God for his suffering. He's waiting. God doesn't do anything. And I think the reason why God doesn't say anything or do anything because God's basically saying, I don't owe you an explanation. I don't owe you an answer. And I think... In our culture, we have it all backwards. We somehow feel God owes us something. Let me ask you a question. What does God really owe us? He doesn't owe us anything. What do we owe God? Everything. And yet, isn't it ironic sometimes that we kind of act like God, you know, we demand something from God, he owes it to us? Isn't that kind of ironic in some way? What I think Eluhu's. Entering into the conversation here is basically suggesting God is not accountable to us. We are accountable to God. God doesn't feel he needs to give an explanation. As a matter of fact, it's going to shock you. God never explains to Job why he did or what he did. He doesn't even explain it to him. As a matter of fact, this is really a test of Job's faith, isn't it? If God would have told him what was going on, it wouldn't have been much of a test You know, if you and I know everything that's going on in our life, how can our faith be tested? Do you think Abraham knew when he went up on the mountain that God was going to send a ram to take the place of his son when God had already spoken to him and said, I want you to offer up your only son Isaac? Do you know what the Bible says in the book of was Abraham reasoned in his mind that if God was going to take his son through this sacrifice, that God was going to raise him back to life because God had promised that it was through that son that he would have many descendants. And so he had every intention of slaying his son, and God knew that and made another provision. But when Abraham went up, he didn't know that. As a matter of fact, I read it in the Bible. It says Abraham... You know, as he got older, God tested him. And if you think, well, you know, I get to a certain age and the tests don't come anymore. Don't believe that, folks. You will be tested. Your faith will be tested. Amen? There will be challenges that will test your faith. You know, Job has not only condemned God in his speeches, but he was also calling God to give an account. We cannot demand from God. One of the important things in helping children mature is teaching them patience. How many know that's true? Now, when you have a brand new infant, what happens? They cry. What do you do? You run in there and take care of their needs. You know, but when they're about five years old and they're starting to cry you know, all the time, you can't just keep running in there. That's what you did from the very beginning. You've never helped them realize there is a cry because they have a need, and then there's a cry to get attention. Then there's a cry that eventually manipulates. How many parents know this is true? Okay, And if you keep running around and doing everything the child wants, what are you creating? Thank you, Donovan, a monster. What you are creating is someone who is very immature. You know, giving into their every demand breeds selfishness and it also, I got to read, okay, and impatience. How many have ever run into demanding people? You know, demanding people act as if they're the most important or they're the only person. How many know that's true? That's the way they behave, like they're it, you know? And it's all about them. Now, you know how I perceive this? You're gonna, you're gonna love this. Have you ever gone to the store, and you're in the store, it could be the supermarket, it could be Walmart, it could be the mall, and all of a sudden there's a two or three-year-old and they're throwing a temper tantrum. How many have ever seen that? You know, and immediately, what do you feel? I feel bad for the parent, does anybody else have that same emotion? You just go, I feel so bad. And you see the parent, they're trying to deal with the child, you know, and the child is incorrigible. You cannot, they're, they're, they're not even rational. You can see they're out of control. They're probably overtired, you know, or they're, you know what I'm saying? So the poor parent's trying to deal with this, right? Now let me tell you something. You have to address that behavior. If you never address that kind of behavior, you know what happens? They grow up pulling this stuff. It's not as nice you know, two- or three-year-old, you go, yeah, they're a little immature. But you know, but when they're 30 years old, it gets a little embarrassing, you know? They're throwing a temper tantrum. And you don't think adults throw temper tantrums? It's very disgusting, you know? It's, it's really showing a tremendous sign of immaturity. This person has never grown up. It's all about them. Do you know part of maturity is when you shift your thinking and it's not just about me. I can tell when I can see people maturing based on how they relate to other people. And I can tell when people are totally full of themselves, that's a sign of immaturity, you know. That's not a healthy place to be. And, you know, all of a sudden you see the person maturing because they shift. It's not just about them, they start focusing on the needs of other people. It's really beautiful to watch that happen. You know, people who always have to have their way end up becoming lonely, miserable people. Isn't that true? How many have met lonely, miserable people? You know, and you can see why they're lonely and you can see why nobody wants to spend time with them because they're just purely miserable people. So I'm trying to help you. I'm your friend. Believe it or not, I'm trying to help you get past all of that nonsense. I want you to grow up because God wants us all to grow up. It reminds me, you know, as I was thinking about this, this book by Philip Yancey, it's called Disappointment with God. Some of you probably read the book. And he shares the story of a man he calls Richard who was struggling with his faith because of all of the disappointments he had experienced with God. Now, let me say something. You can only be disappointed if you've had expectations. How many know that's true? And sometimes we have expectations that are not realistic. And then we're disappointed. Amen? Because we just assume, hey, God's going to do this, God's going to do that. And then when God says, that's not the course I'm charting for you. I've laid out a different track for your life. You go, yeah, yeah, but look what you're doing for that person over there. God goes, yeah, yeah, but I've got a different course for that person. This is the course I'm laying out for you. I know you. I know what's best for you. Okay? Anyways, Richard... He decides one night he's going to, he shares the night he gives up on God. This is what he tells in the story. And it goes something like this He said, I stayed up late uh, one night, long after my neighbors had gone to bed. I lived in kind of a quiet neighborhood. I said something was important about to happen. I was hurt. And many times, I f-, you know, he said, God let me down. Well, that's how he felt. He's just telling you how he felt. He says, I hated God and yet I was afraid to hate God You know, because I was a theology student. So I was a little concerned about it. Maybe God's there and I had it all wrong. I think it's true. God was there, and I think he did have it all wrong. But when you're in that state of mind, you're not thinking straight. I can point that out to you. How could I know, he said. I went back over my whole Christian experience from the very beginning. I remembered that first flash of faith at the university. I was young, vulnerable. Maybe I just learned a few upbeat phrases and talked myself into believing that I could have an abundant life. Maybe I had been mimicking other people living off their experiences. Had I deluded myself about God, still I hesitated to cast aside all that I had believed. I felt I had to give God one more chance. Isn't that nice? He's going to give God a chance. You know? How many chances does God give us? A whole stack. I prayed that night as earnestly and sincerely as I knew how. You know, this guy is sincere. I I get the picture, you know. But I am pointing out his thinking is not quite right. He says, I prayed on my knees. I prayed stretched out flat on the oak floor. God, do you care I prayed? I don't want to tell you how to run the world, but I love that. I don't want to tell you what to do, but, you know, don't we do that with God? Oh, by the way, God, I have an idea. And then when it doesn't happen, we're really upset with them. Like, you know, God really let us down. I'm going, hey, maybe it wasn't God's idea. Maybe that was just our plan, just a thought, you know. He says, but give me some sign that you're really there, you know. That's all I ask. Four years I've been straining for a personal relationship with God, as the phrase goes, and yet God had treated me worse than any of my friends. I'd be interested in how he comes up with that now everything narrowed down to one final question how can you have a personal relationship if you're not sure the other person even exists this guy's struggling with doubt that's the whole issue isn't it with God I could never be sure I prayed for at least four hours at times I felt foolish sometimes sincere I had the sensation of stepping off a ledge in the darkness with no idea where I might land that was up to God finally at four o'clock in the morning I came to my senses we'll see Nothing had happened. God had not responded. Why continue to torture myself? Why not just forget God and get on with my life like the rest of the world? So he gave up on God. He just said God's not there. Folks, I want to tell you, you and I cannot demand anything from God. God has a way of going, you're going to demand this? I'm not going to answer that. How many have kind of figured that out now? When you get demanding, God just withdraws. You start badgering him and tell him, I, want, I demand an answer from you, God goes, you're not getting any. Because you know, folks, God is not accountable to you and to me. We are accountable to God. Let's get this in our mind. You know, if you get this one thought tonight, God is not accountable to me, but I am to him, it's gonna change your whole life. It'll just change your whole orientation to every problem you ever had. I guarantee it. That's what has to happen in our lives. So he rejects God. Why? Because God didn't respond to his expectations. Is God accountable to Richard? No. Is God accountable to our demands? No. It's interesting that God doesn't speak to Job when he gets done laying down the gauntlet. Silence. God comes in his own time and in his own way. And then he challenges Job in verse 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And then he says, you know, who's obscuring my plans? You know, with words without knowledge. In other words, God says, I have a game plan here, and you're coming along and saying, you've got a better plan? I don't think so, right? You're obscuring what I've got going here, Job. You're missing the point. He says, now, buck up, you know, brace yourself like a man. In other words, get ready to answer my questions, Job. I'm putting you on trial because, you know, the whole book, Job's going to have God on trial. God says, no, I'm putting you on trial now, Job. You're going to answer a few questions. You want me in the witness stand? I don't go in the witness stand. I'm the judge. I'm God. You're going in the witness stand. And by the time Job is done being on the witness stand with God, you know what Job says? I didn't know anything. I was a stupid person. I haven't got a clue. You know? <laughs> he backs off. He says, God, you're right. I'm wrong. Uh, sorry, even bringing this stuff up, you know. Very powerful. Well, let me go to the second thing that Elihu is bringing. And the first one is simply uh, the placement of his words. The second is the wisdom that comes from divine inspiration. There is a general principle in life that wisdom can be attained by age and experience. Isn't that true? Usually we think, you know, older people, they got, you know, some experience in life. You know, I want to just tell you, not all old people are wise. How many know that's true? There are a lot of stupid old people. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it's the truth. They just keep repeating the same dumb mistakes over and over and over again. And you know, folks, that is not wisdom. They're not learning anything. Haven't you ever met some people? They're just really stupid. You know, they just keep doing the same dumb things. You just, you know, you're talking to this person, you even show them what to do, and they're just looking at you like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to revert back to the way I've always done things. And I say to them, and you're going to get the same result. True. That's what happens. You know, So why do people repeat the same mistakes over and over again? I'm going to give you some reasons. Here they come real quick. Rebellion, stubbornness, indifference, and bitterness keeps us from growing and developing properly. Can I just say this? If we're going to develop, we have to go outside our comfort zones. Everything I've learned about learning, I am a lifelong learner. Everything I've learned about learning is I have to move outside of what's comfortable for me in order to learn. You know, in my 50s, I decided I'm going to learn tap dancing. I'm going to dance with Rachel, my youngest daughter. It was a scream. I got to tell you, my dance teacher, she's disappointed I'm still not dancing because I did some really crazy things. You say, why is that? Because when she showed me a step, my mind would tell my feet, this is what you gotta do. My feet would send a message back up to my mind and it says, We've never done this before. As a matter of fact, she said to me, You've got moves I've never seen before. <laughs> you know, because your mind is trying to tell your feet to do something. And, you know, when you're five years old, it just kind of happens naturally. When you're in your fifties, it just doesn't work that way. I can tell you that right now. Okay, you're outside your comfort zone. You have to make a fool of yourself in order to learn. You know, I decided, hey, I'm going to learn a new language. I took Greek. My professor said, if anybody in this class says it's all Greek to me, you get an F. Because you know it's a saying, right? It's all Greek to me. I don't, not, I don't understand a thing. I want to tell you, I didn't say it out loud, but there were times in that class where I was thinking, this is all Greek to me. I was not getting it. It was flying over my head. I was drowning in the stuff. But you know what? Eventually, I notice now, I can actually pick up Greek terms, and I see things, and I'm reading texts, and I'm actually picking up Greek words. Wow! You know what? I had to suffer to get to that place. And let me tell you, it was uncomfortable. Why am I saying this to us? We have to understand something. If you're going to develop as a person, you're going to experience things that are not comfortable, but I, I, I want to be comfortable, Pastor. I, w- I want to have an easy life. I don't want any hardships. I don't want any difficulties. And I'm going to say, you're going to remain an immature person. That's it. But God is too good. He says, I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm going to prod you. I'm going to move you along, you know, even though you're a little reluctant to learn. How many? You always feel good after you achieve something that was really difficult. How many of you feel good about that? Any other clerics in the room besides me? You know, you always feel good when you achieve something, right? I love achieving things, you know? And I've learned over the years that even the journey is worth it. Even the difficult moments are worth it. That's how you learn. And God is going to teach us. You know, ultimately, wisdom is a gift that comes by the Spirit of God. So Elihu contends that the truth that he's going to speak is actually coming by the wisdom from God's Spirit. Look at verse 7 of chapter 32. I thought age should speak and advanced years should teach wisdom, but it is the Spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old that are wise, not only the age who understand what's right. And I do agree with Dr. Longman when he says right at the start, Ilahu distanced himself from the friends who base their wisdom on the tradition of the fathers and the experience of old age. Elihu, for his part, claims a spiritual wisdom. How many know that wisdom comes from God? It says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Now I'm going to say this. There are a lot of bright people in the world. They have a lot of knowledge, but they're not always wise. How many have ever met smart people that are stupid? How many have ever met that? You just go, my goodness, these guys are so smart. They're so absolutely stupid. I just can't believe they're not getting this. But folks, the reality is if we don't believe in God, the Bible says we claim to be wise, but we actually become quite foolish. You know, we become morally degenerate. We're just kind of going down a slippery slope and we don't even realize it. James tells us that we can actually ask God for wisdom and he will be generous to us and give us that wisdom. But I want to add a little caution about it. You know, how many people have heard this? You know, God told me this, or God said that. How many have ever heard that? Anybody talk like that? I'm gonna help you not to talk like that. We're gonna eliminate that thinking. I'll tell you why. Because I think that when we say we're, you know, God is saying or doing something, we better make sure it's in keeping with what God is revealing in his scripture. Okay? And, you know, I've done a little bit of reading over the years, and I've done a little bit of studying of the Bible, and I can tell you what I noticed. In the Old Testament, most of the prophets were False the true prophets were in the minority. And the true prophets would do something like this. They would be warning God's people to be prepared to face judgment if they did the wrong thing. How many of that's kind of the message they gave. And the false prophets would be talking like this. Man, everything's gonna work out. You're gonna just prosper. Things are gonna be great. Isn't that kind of their message? And by the way, that hasn't changed one iota. I want you to think about this. This is what's happening in our culture today. You know, there's people out there speaking, and they make you feel good, and you walk out, and I feel like a million bucks. The only problem is, are they really preparing you to face Almighty God? That's the thing that we need to be aware of. Listen, Dr. Longman points out, after all, if God says something, there is no counter-argument. In other words, if you're saying, God's telling me to do this, then who's gonna argue with you? If you're saying, God said that, who's gonna argue with you? When people come to me and say, Pastor, God told me, I say, why are you talking to me? I mean, if he told you to do it, you better go do it. But I think what we really should be saying or what we really probably mean is found in Jeremiah and it's translated by Eugene Peterson in the Message Translation. It says, and if anyone, including prophets and priests, go around saying glibly, God's message, God's message, I'm going to punish him and his family. Instead of of claiming to know what God says, ask questions of one another such as, how do we understand God in this? Now, I kind of like this approach. I'll tell you why. I think when we have a little more humility and we have something happening in our life, instead of saying, This is what God's doing, maybe we should be asking each other in a collective group, What is God doing? And so we have the collective wisdom. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, In the multitude of counselors, there's what? There's safety. Their safety, woo. And listen to what it says. Don't go around pretending to know it all, saying God told me this and God told me that. I don't want to hear it anymore. Only the person I authorize speaks for me. So what am I suggesting to you? Instead of walking around saying God told me this, God told me that, what we should be saying is, I think this is what God's saying in my life. And the moment I say it that way, what am I doing? I'm inviting input. And it's beautiful because if I say it that way, then other believers have an opportunity to say, you know, Paul, I think that you know, possibly God is saying that to you. Or they could say, you know, Paul, I think you are out to lunch. I think you had pizza last night, and God is not telling you that. I think that's just a pipe dream. Amen? Yes. I think there's a little wisdom here, folks, and I'm trying to help us out. You know, Haven't you been around people that God told them this, God's telling them that, God's telling them this? I mean, how can you even talk to a person like that? It's like they got a direct line with God. I think they're just, you know, it sounds good, but I'm not totally convinced. And so I'm, I'm a little older now. I'm not intimidated by all that language. I'm just going to be honest with you. Half the time I'm thinking, God's not even telling him this stuff. But I don't say that because I'm a Canadian. I just think it, right? All right. I'm bad, I know. Let me move on to the final thing that we learned from the story of Elihu here. Not only the placement of his words, not only that wisdom comes from divine inspiration, but he has a right view of God. And I think that's the reason why God doesn't correct him. He understands something. So what did Elihu tell Job? Well, he spoke accurately about God. John Walton says this in this misrepresentation of Job, because Elihu does misrepresent Job. He attributes motivations that are not really Job's. Elihu is no better than the friends. The difference is that he does not misrepresent God as his friends do. And he's right about Job's offense, but he's wrong in his inference about Job's motivation. In other words, what he's noticing is that Job is condemning God. That's what's bothering Elihu. Okay? And that really was wrong, what Job was doing there. Job's suffering, however, did not come as a result of his sin. Write that down. That's important. It didn't come as a result of his sin. It's not what was happening. We already know it was a test, right? Because we read the prologue. We get that. Job contended that God had been silent. Elihu argues that God's been speaking, and that God is always talking, and the problem is we're not listening. How many think that might be true, that God is communicating to humanity, but most of us are not paying attention? Look at chapter 33 and verse 13. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, but though no one perceives it. God speaks in a variety of ways, but as I said, the problem, people aren't listening. So what are some of the ways that God speaks? We'll just go over this real quick. Verse 15, he speaks in dreams and visions. In a dream and a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on people and as they slumber in their bed. Does God speak to people in dreams? Read the Bible. Yes, he does. He spoke to Joseph, warned him, take Mary, the child. You know, Herod's gonna try to kill him. God spoke to Daniel in a dream. But here's a little word of caution. Do you know there's a bunch of Christians out there now, they figure, you know, that's how God speaks. And so they're trying to, you know, listen to each other's dreams and interpret each other's dreams. Do you know dreams, you can, be, you can totally miss the meaning of a dream? Oh yeah, Totally. That's not the clearest way to hear God. I think we got God's word. That's the clearest way to hear what God has to say. But God can't speak to us in dreams. You know, God also speaks to us in pain. Look at verse 19. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones. I know people hate this. You know? Some people go, oh, pastor, God's never gonna use pain. I think we have a wrong understanding of pain. Let me give you two thoughts quickly. Lepers. How many know they wish they had pain? Because what happens when you have leprosy is you can't feel anything anymore. The extremities of your body don't feel pain, and so therefore you end up destroying yourself. Pain is a way of alerting you that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And actually, I'm reading a book by Ravi Zacharias entitled The End of Reason. He's, he tells the story uh, of a, 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 an article he had read of a three-year-old girl in Elk River, Minnesota who suffers from a very rare disease that's called CIPA. It's called congenital insensitivity to pain with anadrosis. He says, people with this disease feel no pain, do not sweat, do not shed tears. There are, there's only approximately 100 cases known in the world, and the problem is they have no sense of pain. So when, when little Gabri, the stories told, of a little girl named Gabby uh, Gingras, at four months old, her parents noticed she was biting her own fingers and they were bleeding and she had no expression of discomfort. At two years old, they pulled her teeth because they were afraid that she was going to eat the, you know, members deck, the, the indexes off her fingers. You know, Just take those things off. As a matter of fact, she could put her hand on a hot plate and burn herself without a twinge of pain. She had to wear safety glasses, because one time she began to scratch her eye, and she started wrecking her cornea. She had no sense of pain. How many get an idea that pain may be a positive thing? As a matter of fact, the people that have children with CIPA, you know, their children only live to be about 25 years old. And these parents are praying every day that one day their child will feel pain. Because pain is not the problem. But we think it is because we live in a culture where we're so used to not having pain. You know, Other parts of the world don't have this issue. The other thing is, Elihu points out that God speaks through a mediator. In verses 23 and 24, Yet if there's an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. I love this because this is a little, I I believe this is a little foreshadowing of the role of Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the one that comes down. He's the one that speaks on our behalf. Elihu falsely accuses Job of keeping company with the wicked. I'm not going to go into all of that, but there's a number of verses. But let me just come down to that Elihu believes as the friends that Job is guilty of sinning. And And one of the things that uh, Elihu finally, finally what makes Elihu different than the other guys is simply this. His primary argument is that God doesn't answer to us for his actions and judgments. He is God. And what he does is always right. Look what it says in chapter 34, verse 12. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? By the way, who appointed God over the earth? He made it, right? I mean, who put him in charge of the whole world? If it was his intention and he withdrew spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would turn to the dust. What is he saying? We need God. God doesn't need us. Humanity, then, is accountable to God. Verse 17, can anyone who hates justice govern? That's a great question. Now, you can say, well, yeah, there's people that are leaders that are not very just. Yeah, but they're not really qualified to be a good leader. He says, good leaders do things right. He says, listen, can anyone who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and the mighty one, speaking of God? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princesses and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? God's judgments are accurate. He knows everything. As a matter of fact, in verse 21, his eyes are on the ways of mortal, he sees their every step. There is no deep shadow, no utter darkness where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine people further that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. What is he basically saying? Listen, God doesn't have to try to figure out what's going on. He already knows what's going on. He knows the motivation of every heart. When God acts, it's always the right thing. And what Elihu is saying is, Job, don't don't say that God doesn't know what he's doing. Don't don't say that God is being unjust in this situation. God is more than fair. We don't always understand what's going on in our lives. So who are we to question what God is doing in our life? Isn't that great? Who are we to question God? Just a thought. Who are we to question God? When we embrace that God is good and loving, and by the way, if you read the Bible, you're going to come away with that conclusion. And in spite of our current pain or suffering that we're experiencing, our hope is really not in this world. Let me close with this last statement by Philip Yancey. He says, in my visit to churches outside of North America, outside of Europe, outside of affluence is what he's saying. He says, one thing stands out sharply. Their view of hardship and suffering we who live in an unprecedented comfort seem obsessed with the problem of pain. Skeptics mention it as a major roadblock to faith and believers struggle to come to terms with it. He says even our prayer meetings reflect how we focus on illness and we request prayer for healing but he said that's not the way. it's in other parts of the world. I think it's very fascinating. I have a theory and it goes something like this. We have it so good in the world in which we live, that we almost have a little heaven on earth. And anything that disrupts that, we feel like we're being gypped, okay? The only problem is, this is not the destination. I just want to point that out to us. Our destination is up ahead. We are journeying through this life and we are being groomed and developed by God to spend all of eternity in heaven. This is not heaven. And so, why are we shocked when we have difficulty on this side? This is normal. But because we've had so much affluence and blessing, we think that's normal. And for the majority of people in the world, that's abnormal. I'll tell you that right now it's abnormal. And so they don't even think like us. How's that? So a lot of the stuff we're rattling about, they look at us like, what are you talking about? Because when you read the Bible, and I have many times, what I notice is there is pain, there is sorrow, there is suffering, there is tests, there are difficulties, there are challenges. But the Apostle Paul says they're all but light affliction when we compare it to what's on ahead. Let's stand tonight. I've entitled the sermon, Let God Be God. What do you think? You think it's good to let God be God? How many think that might be a smart thing? (laughs) How many think God's an all-wise person? How many believe that God is a loving person? How many believe he's a loving father? How many believe he really cares about us? And even though we may journey with difficulty, and I'm not trying to minimize your sorrow, by the way. Don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to minimize suffering. I'm not trying to minimize disappointment. I'm not minimizing hardship, those are all real things. I believe God suffers with us. I believe we should pray for each other. I believe we should bear one another's burdens. You know, I I believe in all of that and I believe God's word teaches us that. But what am I trying to say tonight? For us to start telling God what to do. For us to try to make him accountable to us, wrong approach. Amen. I think what we need to say is, God, I'm accountable to you. I believe I'm going to submit myself to you, my Father. You are the all-wise God. He's laid out a track for each one of our lives, and they all look a little different. Don't, don't compare your track with somebody else's. You're not that person. God has something in mind. We all have to give an account before Almighty God. He puts certain things in all of our lives, does He not? Some people He gives more, some people He gives less. Some people He expects more, some people He expects less from. But ultimately, He expects us to be faithful. He expects us to embrace Him. And like a child, just trust Him. And I think that's the bottom line. You know, all of my study over all the years, I come to one last bottom line with God. And it comes something like this. I just got to trust Him. I got to trust Him when I don't understand. I love being a Christian. I love it because I don't need to know everything. I can, I can live with mystery. I can live with uncertainty because I know I have a God who is my certainty. I can live with, you know, the fact that I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do know the one who's holding my tomorrow. And I know ultimately I'm going to be with Him. That's the most important thing. Maybe you're here today. You don't know those things. I want to encourage you. To know God is to know life. To know God is to know joy. To know God is to know hope, even in the midst of difficulty. And if you don't know him, I'd love to talk to you tonight. You can just come and chat with me. I'd love to introduce you to him. You can know him in a personal way. That's a reality. You can know your sins are forgiven. But tonight, if you're a child of God and you're going through a difficult time, what am I saying to you? trust God trust Him you may never be able to figure it out and God's not going to give you an answer but He's going to do something better than that He's going to give you His presence that's what He gave Job He gave him His presence and to have the presence of God there's nothing like it